Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Her story, Point Blank Murder, has just won the 2019 ABR Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize. Point Blank Murder follows a hypervigilant new parent in a remote property, lost in unfamiliar new rhythms and a podcast that provokes disturbing questions. And also Sonia Dekian will join me to talk about her story and the questions at its heart. But soon, Anna Crean, author of two award-winning works of non-fiction, Night Games and Into the Woods, has just released her first novel, Act of Grace, and it's as complex, challenging and nuanced as her non-fiction works. Anna will join me to talk about her book and the tides of politics and history that influenced it. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Anna Crean, author of two award-winning works of non-fiction, Night Games and Into the Woods, has just released her first novel. Act of Grace follows lives soon to be entwined. Jerry, who has grown up in the shadow of his abusive father and who has brought home the shrapnel, both literal and metaphorical, of his tour in Iraq. Nassim recalls her life from her childhood as a budding young pianist whose poet mother is grudgingly pulled into Saddam Hussein's orbit and later a survivor who reaches for what she can to make it to safety but can't escape who she has had to become to make it through. And Robbie, dealing with her father's early onset dementia and being forced to confront her dark past, one that unresolved is still shackled to the present. Anna Crean joins me now to talk about this complex, nuanced book and the legacy of politics and history that inform it. Anna, welcome to Backstory. Hi, Mel. Thanks for having me. Now, this story, uh, we've just been kind of chatting off air about how it's a really complex one to talk about because there's just so much in it that mm. really, you know, that draws you in and that kind of makes you question your assumptions about what you first thought about the characters, about what you think about the issues that you think you know. Uh, it's a really fascinating book and I, I want to really embark with where the hell did this come from? <laughs> uh, where did it come from? Um I guess in a way it came from a similar place my journalism comes from, from a hell of a lot of research, from never taking anything for granted, for questioning every assumption I've ever had, as well as, you know, people around me, their own assumptions. Um, But then there's that leap that fiction takes that journalism can't take, which is um, because initially it began with the returned Australian soldier from Iraq and so, you know, I, as usual, got completely and utterly obsessed with a topic and I got obsessed in this instance with Iraq and the Iraq war and Australia's role in that 12-year war. Uh, and that was all done with the intention of building up this character of Tui and it never was done with the idea that I might end up writing outside of Australia. But then two years into writing the book, I suddenly found myself writing a story, a chapter set in Baghdad and 
suddenly found myself writing a character that was Iraqi and a family and then suddenly found myself writing Saddam Hussein as a character and his son. And then it was a kind of breathless, exhilarating moment. And that's, I think, when I really got got my teeth into it and I really realised, oh, this is where I can take a leap that I can't do in journalism. And that's when it got really, I think, fun, not to say that it was easy or effortless, but it's, I started to go, oh, I can do things here that I can't do in a journalistic way. What I really love about this book is that I think you could really have just, you know, stuck with the kind mm-hmm. of, you know, I guess Jerry, who is a young, um, you know, a young boy when we first meet him, but mm. who grows up during the course of the book. Um, you could have stuck with him, you know, his relationship with his abusive father, um, maybe added in Nassim's story, <laughs> but then you've added this other layer of complexity on top of it, which, I mean, all of the things work together in this sort of beautiful way. But to sort of, you know, set out the book, I think one of the things that I really realised when I first started reading it was that this was going to be a book that was really going to undercut all of my assumptions as I went through it. Mm. You start out by sort of, I guess, slow dipping us into, you know, the way that a lack of empathy evolved for a group of soldiers that have gone to Iraq, Mm. where their relationship with kids, where at first that's the sort of highlight of their time there is that there's these kind of quite adorable children that they sort of spend time with and then over their time in Iraq, that relationship starts to turn not just you know, poisonous, but basically, you know, horrific. Mm. And so you sort of see how that process happens, how the kind of process of, of, of a group of people just losing their humanity or their sense of humanity. Yeah. And that sort of sets out, you know, really the complexity of where we're heading with this story. And again, with Nassim uh, and with Robbie as well, you're sort of undercutting all of the elements that you set up. Nassim as well is just this wonderful uh, example of, an asylum seeker that is allowed to be a complex human uh, Mm. in a way that we very rarely get to see uh, in a lot of Australian meditations on this topic. Mm. Uh, She's not... She's not a a kind of one-sided character. She's she's complex. She's done things that that are pretty dark. Yeah. Yeah, she's done dark things in order to survive. And I think there's this expectation from so many people who need help or seek asylum... Um, be they refugees or be they just the pe- people on on Australian streets, there's this assumption that they have to, um, if they if they need help, then they have to present themselves as these perfect creatures. Um, and I think often I I I, I can't imagine survival a, a, a good attempt at genuine survival doesn't involve a dark moment um, from within. Um, and 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 from outside forces, so and I think I guess that's sort of a response to, I guess the, the constant dumbing down of these issues in um, in society, in politics, in, uh, in the media, that um, um, that people feel like it has to be black and white, that we have to represent people as, in, as innocents and as victims in order to help them, whereas. I just think that destroys their humanity even more. 
It's quite difficult to talk about this book without giving away some of the quite highly geared (laughs) plot points uh, Mm. because this is a very thoughtful work and obviously the characters are depthful and interesting but uh, Mm. there is a kind of a really sort of intrinsic plot that that links everything together. Mm. Uh, Even talking about active grace, this concept that you introduce, I can't really... I guess, discuss it unless people want to sort of delve a little bit more into some of the spoilers of the book, perhaps. Yeah, well, I think it's fine to mention um, what Act of Grace is. Um, and it's it actually was um, a bureaucratic term that I learned about six or so years ago when I did a story on returned veterans. And one returned veteran from Iraq uh, told me about these um, compensation payments that the Australian government can make um, on behalf of Australian soldiers who might have accidentally have hurt a civilian um, in their actions. And the Australian government calls these payments acts of grace. And being a writer and being well aware of the origins of the Iraq war and how it came to be... um, it struck me as a really uh, Orwellian phrase uh, if it wasn't even possible to have an act of grace in such a disgraceful war. um, And then also the the miserliness of those actual payments, you know, that were $2,500 and don't come back, don't ask for anything else, um, when, you know, people have actually been maimed or hurt or Mm traumatised and beyond... Um, So that's the official act of grace in the novel and I kind of, I don't think I was doing this consciously but when I look back on it, I've built this novel around a whole bunch of different acts of grace and put a question mark underneath them. Are these graceful moments? Um, Can such an event be, have a grace to it? Well, that's that is really an underlying question, and mm. you know there is one kind of I guess the the first introduction of Act of Grace uh, in the in the way that you're describing it has a consequence that could be considered that in a certain light, which is really interesting. I think uh, you know again you're not answering any difficult questions here you're raising more questions with a lot of your characters but Mm. each of them do find a certain grace I think in their relationships um, Mm. which is something that's really fascinating about this book I want to talk a little bit about Tui Mm. Uh, he is the Iraq uh, the Iraqi soldier or the Australian soldier who's um, entered Iraq rather who comes back um, with and I thought this was such a you know, painful metaphor this, with this kind of literal shrapnel in his neck that mm. is working its way out yep. um, as, you know, as his memories are working their way out. And I thought this was a really interesting sort of metaphor that you've used for the trauma that's in literally every character in this book. Yeah, so, yeah, so his shrapnel is in his neck and it's uh, quite a, a visceral sort of image and his son who is incredibly alert to his father's unpredictableness. Um, um, Tui creates an air of uneasiness wherever he is. Um, so his son is alert to those lumps of shrapnel in his father's neck and he knows that when they get red and a bit sore and a bit pussy that his father is um, going to become even more unpredictable and things are going to go wrong. So the lumps... Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're both metaphoric and literal in that way. 
Absolutely. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Anna Crean about her new novel, Act of Grace, that is an incredibly interesting, complex story that follows three different narratives that are all intertwined and cover some of the the big sort of historical and political events of, you know, the past decades. Let's talk about Robbie. Mm, Robbie. What, what do you feel her role is in this novel? Uh, Robbie is Robbie is Robbie um so the novel sort of spans from the 1970s to to now with all the characters and so there's this you're looking at the Saddam regime in Iraq and then you're looking at Australia's involvement in um the Iraq war and then Robbie uh looks at a different thread uh which is oh what is what is inheritance and what is um, what is Aboriginality? Uh, her father was a is a stolen generation man. Uh, he has no culture, um, and he's been he's ne- he has no he has no belonging to say white or or black in a way. And he's also living through a time where increasingly it's become quite. Uh, um, accepted and and um, alluring for people to know an Aboriginal person. So he finds himself working as a janitor, and a, one particular teacher uh, is a, um, a desperate for him to claim his um, Aboriginality, and she'll leave him books about trying to find his totem animal and all those kind of things. And he's he's in a rage he's often in a rage about this um he often yells at his wife claire like no one tells you to go find your inner leprechaun um and so robbie um sort of grows up in this shadow and is also witness to her father's early onset dementia and so there's kind of a double loss for him he's losing he never had the memories he ought to have had and now he's losing the memories that he does have um, and he is very wary of Robbie and he's wary of her future because she looks like him. She she is dark. She's dark-eyed, she's dark-haired, dark-skinned, whereas her brother Otis is pale and Aryan, basically, and he knows that Otis will be free. The system won't get him, whereas he warns Robbie that, you know, She's got to be wary, she's got to be clever and she's got to, you know, keep her nose out of trouble. Um, and Robbie is the opposite of that. She is angry, she's creative, she, um, she's quite vicious in her opinions and um, kind of wonderful but um, always naive as well. Um, even when I feel like she's on the right side of history, um, she's naive and doesn't quite understand the complexities um, that she expects she expects people to be outspoken allies, but doesn't understand the complexities that people have to go through to to meet her there. There's also, I mean, I guess even as she's sort of unearthing these memories, which is this, you know, wonderful, I suppose, um, 
you know, contrast to the metaphor of her father losing his mm. um, and, you know, gradually being sort of absorbed into, you know, what it is that was designed for him in a sense. Yeah. Um, that forgetting or that lack of, of knowledge. Um, she's, as she's learning hers, with it comes the burden of trauma. And mm. I think that this is a really interesting element because it, it's true for all of the characters in many ways, that kind of unearthing or that, you know, leeching out as you get um, or the you know, more kind of directly with the shrapnel emerging mm. um, that the past is is constantly bubbling up for all these characters. Yeah, very much so. And and the sacrifices um, each character needs to make to survive and remain in the present. Um, Nassim um, is constantly having to shed who she is um, to basically stay alive Um and whilst Robbie is constantly searching and trying to um, really get to the core of who she is and express that um, in order to survive, and they're, they're completely opposite positions. Um, uh, Jerry is... Uh, I kind of love Jerry as a character. I, I've, I feel heartbroken for him and he's... he's um, and then he transforms. He really... He sort of... I, I have... I feel quite connected to him in that sense. I can, he has these discoveries um, in his early 20s where he kind of looks back on his 14 years of education and realises that um, he's not entirely sure what it is that he ever learned. Um, and he um, hooks up with this fantastic trio who start introducing him to uh, critical thinking and um, Based, even the most obvious things that he thought were um, legitimate, like a map, um, suddenly he realised he had to question maps. And, you know, and he has this feeling that his head is an old pot plant that hasn't been watered for a very long time. And that's the beginning of his transformation. And I, I really enjoyed taking that character to that place. Yeah, it's really um, his... I guess arc is one of the most satisfying mm. in the book because you really do feel like, you know, early on, what hope did he have? Uh, yeah. You sort of thought, is he going to sort of be so influenced by his experiences with his father that he would head in, in a dark direction and it doesn't yeah. go that way at all? I think um, I really do want to talk about, I mean, you have you have said why you decided to make this fiction mm. as opposed to non-fiction. You got to kind of be in the heads of people that you wouldn't normally be. You got to recast Uday and Saddam Hussein as a fictional characters in yep. your book, um, you know, and sort of show the experiences that someone might have interacting with them. But I am also interested in why these particular tides of history, why did you decide to sort of really plumb those? Uh, I do some... I When I became quite obsessed with looking, um, researching the Iraq war and Australia's role in it I also realized I kind of noticed that um, it was a chapter that hadn't yet been written um, when you look at our literature um, it's kind of just been washed over and sometimes I find myself wondering like if we were to sort of excavate this time that we're currently in would our would our reality be reflected in our literature and vice versa. Um, and I really was struck by that some really, really important key moments in recent history, um, you can't find them in literature today. And I think 
when everyone's currently talking about Trump and talking about you know the death of politics and the erosion of democracy, I think you can you can go back to the Iraq War, um, to where it was laid down, how it was the misinformation was fed through, the complete um, dismissal of public opinion, um, and sort of stubbornness in going into this war and imploding a country and then leaving it as is. I think we can find the threads to what we're now reaping. Yeah, and I think you've sort of laid this out in a very human way so that Mm. you're not just sort of, it's not a novel of ideas, it's a novel of people Mm. at the heart of those. Where do you sort of feel... um, I mean, I I, I am sort of, I I do want to talk a bit about the structure of this novel because, Mm. in fact, I'm really interested in how you've kind of managed to keep all of the sort of plates spinning here while, Mm. you know, were you ever at any stage tempted to sort of, you know, cut off one storyline and really focus on uh, a particular character? Did you, how did you knit it all together? Because this feels like such an epic. Yeah. I am wondering about the process of writing. I think the concept began as short stories and I... Then they kept linking up and the reverberations from one story would appear in another. And then I realised that I wanted them to really properly speak to get to each other because I do, again, think that that reflects our times. Um, Sometimes you get this sense that uh, when you read uh, something... Uh, it's like, oh, Australians only live in Australia and they don't even think about, like, and it's like, well, no, we're, we're globalised people now and you have, we've been, so many of us have been overseas numerous times and we'll find ourselves on in blockades that uh, are and, um, sort of fighting issues that aren't so-called Australian issues. So... I wanted to to show a modern life in that way, uh, so it was only felt only right for me to start matching up those threads. And I think my journalism, I, I think that is something that I'd like to do anyway. I I don't think anything exists in its own space or in its own vacuum. I like to show how consequences can sort of leak and change other scenarios and impact them in unusual ways absolutely and it's and it is kind of this feeling of an internationalist novel in a sense rather than feeling like you're sort of here in Australia and then casting you know this rest of the stuff as background it's all interconnected Uh, I you know you've mentioned the research and it is Mm. so very clear that there's there's a lot of bedrock underneath each of these characters none Mm. of them feel thin Uh, there is a genuine sense of the depth uh, that you've gone to to try and make them real. Mm. What did that involve? Um, what did that involve? I guess the usual, my usual obsession of, of researching and reading. Um, to the, I mean, with the war thing, it's you, I just read everything. So government po- reports, government policies, through to war reporters and. Um, histories of Iraq and uh, blogs, self-published memoirs because that's um, Australian soldiers or soldiers all around love to do a self-published memoir. So I guess I cast the net pretty far. And same with Robbie and her father. I mean, there's there's a there's an amazing in 
intense amount of research um, from, from you know of the stolen generations and there's a lot of there's a bureaucratic paper trail in many places and I guess those were the two really obvious um, ways of shaping my characters uh, the rest is I guess just just that's the craft is creating a character who feels real um, and dialogue that feels honest and not forced and um, characters that aren't at the, and also to trust the reader uh, I feel like there's a lot of sometimes that happens where you feel like the, the writer doesn't trust the reader that they won't get it so a lot of it can be left to the reader to they're allowed they give like these little launching moments where you you know you can think you can imagine them like this but you can also just imagine this character how you might like to um and I that's one of my favorite parts of reading is being allowed to make the pictures myself I there's so much more I want to talk (laughs) about in this book and I really I would very much recommend to people to kind of spend some time with it you've you've gone to such effort to create a level of detail in the lives of each of these people that is truly a delight to read even while some of the imagery is you know <laughs> is disturbing and creates this this sense of of you know what each of the characters has gone through um so look uh, inc- including i guess in Nassim's uh section where you've you've created a book of poetry, I guess, or at yeah. least a poem from a book of poetry. Was... Yeah, someone actually asked me the other day, so do you still write poetry? And I, I was about to say no, and I went, well, actually, yes. I wrote some poems, but I didn't write them for me. I wrote them for my character. So, <laughs> and, it, and it is for quite a sort of marginal character as well who yeah. doesn't, uh, doesn't appear for long but has, has quite a powerful uh, statement to make. Again, I'll, mm. I'll let readers discover that for themselves. But Anna Crean, um, this was truly a delight uh, and I wish you the best of luck with Act of Grace. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading it and having me. That was Anna Crean talking about her novel Act of Grace, which is out now through Black Ink, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. An odd disquiet builds as a hypervigilant new parent takes their infant daughter on long walks around a rural property, navigating unfamiliar new rhythms and absorbed in a podcast that provokes disturbing questions. That's the loose premise for Point Blank, Sonia Dekian's 2019 ABR Elizabeth Jolly award-winning story. And Sonia joins me now to discuss the story. Sonia, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me. So I cannot stop thinking about this short story since I read it and I was uh, kind of addressing some of the issues with you just before we went to air. I'd like to talk about where this story came from because it does seem to play around with ideas of how memory works. It's always hard to pinpoint where something came from, isn't it? I think um, it's not from one particular moment, more from, I guess... um, a mood perhaps or a series of considerations I never really set out when I write a story to have something to say in the sense that I'm I'm never trying to sort of teach something or or get something across I'm just maybe figuring something out or or recreating a mood that struck me um, in this case 
I, I do have a young child and so the theme of the new parents and sort of new perspective on their old lives and discovering a new life that, you know, I guess that's something that I have um, experienced and also seen a lot of other people experiencing. So, so that aspect is something that I, I drew from life. And the podcast, the podcast part of it is, is also something, I mean, I, like a lot of us, I've, I've listened to a lot of those true crime podcasts or scandal podcasts, all of those, and I'm always left a little bit uncomfortable by them. And that's something I had been thinking a lot about. Um, it's sort of interesting because as I was reading it, I was thinking about one evening when I was lying in my bedroom listening to In the Dark, a, a podcast, a kind of true crime podcast, one of the better ones in my opinion, that, you know, really was talking about, uh, you know, a particular murder that had happened and then all of a sudden all the lights went out <laughs> and, you know, there was a blackout and I was just lying there and, you can't help but kind of draw in the world that you've just been listening to into, you know, what it is that you're experiencing. And I thought, what are we doing when we're indulging in these lives? And there's that real sense of our lives are intrinsically safe uh, in, you know, in the countries that we live in. Uh, we have, you know, especially us middle class people, we are fairly removed from risk. And so we, we like to sort of listen to mm, these, dabble in these, thrills. Dabble in these yeah. thrills. And so there's an element of that running through this. But at the same time, it's sort of raising other questions uh, for the person listening. I think in particular, the, I was thinking about the sort of power that the narrator of a podcast has to to influence us like the if we're watching a documentary we're much more critical for some reason when it's a podcast and we're just listening to it alone we tend to go along so much more with their perspective and they, they have the power to completely frame um another person's life presuming it's it's a it's a podcast about real life and um and the way we think about it and what we take away from it and I had been thinking about that and the aspect of that that makes me uncomfortable and I think that is what comes through in the story, that theme of the the way that we recollect things, the versions of stories that, that we tell and the different perspectives that there are on those stories. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm talking to Sonia Dekian about her short story, which just won the 2019 ABR Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize. Uh, it is one that is, you know, really provoking a lot of thought about, you know, how we tell stories about memory. I'm really interested in how you construct a short story because they tend to sort of tell much bigger stories in a very compressed space. Where did this one kind of evolve from in terms of the, the structure? I had the idea that I, I wanted to have a fragmented structure. Um, I wasn't sure what those fragments would consist of. In this case, it turned out that they are, it, it's fairly, um, it, it moves forward through time. It doesn't really jump around a lot in that sense, but the fragments are things like um, there'll be parts of the narrator's walk, parts of the narrator's dreams, uh, a, a fragment of a conversation with the narrator's partner. So it's, it's fragmentary in that sense that you don't really know how much time has passed. So it's quite, I think, disorienting. Um, but I, I generally, when I write something, I don't know what it's going to be. I started out writing those fragments and piecing them together, but I didn't really know how I was going to structure it overall until it was finished. It's not like I um, sat down and, and mapped it out. It, it just evolved. 
So I, I really find it quite interesting because the way you've structured it is that at the end of or towards the end of the story, the I guess the protagonist is starting to kind of ponder, you know, the conventions of podcast storytelling themselves and then thinking back to the things that they were thinking about at the start of the story. So you kind of you're pulled in as a reader to think about hang about what's this story I'm being told and how's it being designed as well was that a sort of an intentional device that you know as you started to maybe rework the piece that you put together yes it was I I wanted to sort of undermine um, the narrator's understanding of the story that they were listening to so suddenly the perspective is changed on on what is true and what is not true and who has the ability to tell the truth of that story and I think that ties in with um the narrator also losing perspective on the truth of his his own or their own life um, as they walk through the bush each day with their child. I think they're sort of losing the um, the string of their own um, sanity, I guess. <laughs> and you have you haven't really named the central character or or you know emphasised gender, so people mm. can project themselves onto this character quite easily and I did find myself sort of getting you know quite caught up in what they were doing as a result of that again that's sort of a really great thing that fiction can do Uh, is that kind of a a device that you've played with a fair bit? Uh, A bit recently yeah I had written a I have a collection of stories and and one of them in there I had written a character which um, was similar in they were in the first person and I, I didn't name them and I just I found it People um, people spoke to me about that story a lot. They had their own connections to that story a lot more than some of the others. And in that case, the, the character did have a gender, but a lot of people got it wrong. Um, they just misremembered or misinterpreted it because they had their own, which is fine. Like I, I, I'm okay with that. I was interested that they had their own, yeah, their own perspectives on that person and that person's gender. And so in this case, I just thought I'll leave it a bit more wide open because that is something that people do seem to like, that it kind of draws you in a bit Mm. more. I don't know why. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, again, as well, though, you're playing with this idea of form and, you know, what it is that we take away from a story and, uh, you know, without it being told entirely for us. Uh, And I guess, you know, undercutting assumptions is sort of what happens in the the podcast story that's being told, Uh, you know, the rug sort of being pulled out from under... Um, the usual sort of, I guess, true crime tale. It becomes something a little bit different. Again, I don't want to give away too much. So, look, uh, I do want to talk about the prize itself. Yeah. Uh, short story prizes, you know, have a huge role in in writers' lives, and this one's quite significant. What do you think you're going to use this uh, this new sort of, I guess, um, fame to do? Um, hopefully, continue writing. Um, it has been. It has had a really good response. It's been very interesting um, winning the prize. It was quite unexpected, and um, had I've had a big response. I think a lot of people have read the story because it was available on the website for a while. So I think more people have read that story than probably any of any of the ones in my book. I just had a lot of emails from people with their um, their take and the ways that they connected to the story, which was um, it was really lovely and just really interesting to see as well. So. Um, yeah, I, I think I am just hoping that it will lead to um, more opportunities f- for me to have more time to write. Absolutely. Well, I very much recommend that people, uh, I think you have to uh, subscribe or sign up for uh, Australian Book Review to read the story, but it is very much a recommended read. Uh, Sonia Dekian, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you for having me. 
Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.